Good to see you this evening. I appreciate you coming back. have about 74 of our young people and sponsors in Colorado. So we've got an empty spot up here toward the front, but uh, we will carry on anyway. Glad you're here. If you're new to Sunday night or visiting, I guess we're working on a topic for the whole year of what people want to know about the Bible. The premise is that uh, most people have very basic questions about the Bible. Even though they've never heard much about the Bible, they may have been told something about the Bible, and they want to know some real basic things in life, but sometimes some of the things they've heard confuse them. So we're kind of working through this year on some real basic questions about the Bible. Uh, we've been through a couple of topics. We're on topic three, which I called Bible Basics. These are just things about the Bible itself that people have questions about. Uh, we spent a couple of weeks on the Testaments, the difference between the Old and the New Testament, because a lot of confusion there. A lot of people don't understand that. Uh, tonight we start a uh, topic that will take us a couple of weeks at least. Uh, and I called it, Are There Errors in the Bible? Uh, and we're going to cover a number of different little parts to this. But let me just kind of set the stage first about why we're talking about this. Uh, years ago, I don't even remember how many years ago it was. It had to be almost 20 probably or more. A fellow I worked with who knew I was uh, on TV and taught the Bible and did all that, uh, came in one day, and he just kind of liked to agitate a little bit. And He came in, and he had a uh, new, uh, weekly newspaper of some sort or magazine. And in the back, he said, look here. And there was an ad in the back, and I think it was for $3. If you sent $3 off, uh, they would send you a list of like 55 discrepancies in the Bible. And he said, what do you think about this? And I said, well, you go ahead and send off for it. And if I can't explain all of them to you, I'll give you your $3 back. He said, really? I said, yeah. In fact, I'll give you the $3 now. You send off for it. We'll just see what it says. Well, he did send off for it. He got this list of discrepancies in the Bible. And luckily, it was one of the worst ones I've ever seen. It was, <laughs> it was, most of them were really dumb. I mean, just really dumb things. Uh, something taken out of context uh, that says, this verse says this, this verse says this. Well, God said this one, and Satan said this one. They probably shouldn't agree. Uh, that was the kind of list it was. It wasn't very profound at all. Uh, my point is that there's that kind of thing. Uh, the, the, the statement, oh, the Bible's full of mistakes. The Bible's full of errors. The Bible's full of discrepancies. You can't trust the Bible. It was written by men. It's got all sorts of mistakes in it. Uh, that kind of thing's been around forever. Uh, people have found uh, minor discrepancies or a translation error or uh, something that doesn't sound the same somehow, and they've put it on a list. 
uh, and those things magnify over the years and get collected, uh, and they're easier to find these days. In fact, I, I sat down just to, to see, and I Googled a couple of things. One, I Googled, can you believe the Bible? Well, anytime you Google anything, you get both sides of the story. And you get ChristianityToday.com will give you all the reasons, yeah, you can believe the Bible. And uh, Gospel, uh, can't read my writing here, GospelSomething.com uh, gave all the reasons you could believe the Bible. But then GodIsImaginary.com gave you all the reasons you couldn't believe the Bible. And you look through those kind of things, those lists are out there, all kinds of things. In fact, uh, GodIsImaginary.com, I just happened to, was one of the first ones, so I looked at it up. And it talked about why you can't believe the Bible and why the Bible is repulsive and all sorts of things. The first example they used, and I'm going to take time to tell you about it because it goes back to our Testament thing we worked on the last couple of weeks. Their first example, and they had a little video of it to convince people that the Bible's worthless, uh, they had started with a quote by Chief Justice Scalia that said 99% of people in America believe in the Ten Commandments. don't know if that's true or not, but they started with that quote. Then they said, all right, look at the Ten Commandments. The Fourth Commandment says, remember the Sabbath day. Keep the Sabbath day. They said, well, nobody keeps the Sabbath day. So Walmart's open on the Sabbath. Target's open on the Sabbath. Uh, Christian Family Christian stores are open on the Sabbath. Nobody keeps it. And then they went back and said, well, read in Exodus that anybody who doesn't keep the Sabbath needs to be put to death. So that... that that wraps it all up right there. You, you, don't, you can't believe the Bible. It's repulsive. can't be from God. What are we going to do? Line everybody up? Line all the thousands of people in America up and shoot them? So, remember how we closed last time? What covenant are we under? Answers that question pretty quickly. But that's their number one example of why the Bible's worthless. Uh, I googled Bible mistakes forward about what side they're on, uh, but that one I happened to look up on it a little bit, and it had 61 contradictions. And it started out, it said, here's a list of contradictions in the Bible. And then it had this statement. You would think a perfect, omnipotent, and omniscient God would reasonably be expected to have done a better job. Uh, that's the way they started their website. Here's all these contradictions in the Bible. And I, they just had a list of them. I counted them. They happened to have 61. Uh, there's websites that claim there are thousands of errors in the Bible. Yeah. So now why I spend all that time telling you that background is because those kind of lists have always been around, but you used to have to pay $3 and mail off to get one of them. Now, in a couple of seconds, you can Google up a whole bunch of them. 
And anybody that's starting out to study the Bible or kind of interested in the Bible or just looking around for information is going to run into all that kind of stuff. Uh, There are lots of places out there that claim the Bible's not inspired, it doesn't have all the books in it it should, or it's got too many, it's archaeology disproves it, science disproves it, it's got thousands of errors in it. That's all out there. So people ask that kind of thing. They call in to know your Bible and say, how do we know that the Bible's from God? How do we know we got the right books in the Bible? How did the Bible get to us? Are there really lots of errors in the Bible? So those are the kind of things we're going to talk about uh, next couple of weeks. Uh, as another example, I've got a stack of paperwork here from some graders. Uh, I believe this student, Know Your Bible student, has changed graders here. Uh, but it, but anyhow, what this student's doing for the last few weeks or months, actually, is writing out in great detail, uh, in longhand, and different color inks and all of them, spending tons of time writing this stuff. And they're directly off some list of discrepancies in the Bible. I mean... It doesn't take long to look at them once you've seen a list or two. Uh, he somehow got a hold of a list of this. And why he's taking the correspondence course and also sending this in, I'm not sure. Uh, but I think he's questioning us. Anyhow, his graders have given it to me to, to handle. And so that's one reason for this lesson is the first couple I got, I thought, okay, I'll look up the answer and give him the answer and all that. But he just kept pouring them in. And I thought, no, this guy doesn't need individual answers. He just needs an overview that there's a reason these are on the discrepancy list and there's easy answers to everything on the discrepancy list. Uh, And that points out the main problem with all of these things. They're all answerable. They just take so much time. (laughs) <laughs> they're just, they, they eat your time up. And when you, you want to, like we talked last week, if you just settled the Testament question, uh, you could tell people about the good stuff. But they get hung up on that. People get hung up on these little things. Um, and let me just give you a couple of examples that he sent in so you know what he's writing down and how people think. They've seen this list. And, uh, for instance, uh, let's see, this one here. Who was high priest when David went into the house of God and ate the consecrated bread? Well, in Mark, Jesus says it was Abiathar, the high priest. And But if you go back to 1 Samuel, it says Ahimelech was the father of Abiathar. So that gets the list of discrepancies. Okay. Well, if you take a little time, if you and you don't even have to study it yourself because there's people that have found all these answers. You just Google and look for them. But if you do a little bit of study, you find out what really happened in history is Ahimelech gave David the bread, and almost immediately after that he died, and his son Abiathar became the high priest. 
And when Jesus was talking, he said, David, in the days of Abiathar, in the time of Abiathar, around the time when he was the high priest, he ate showbread. Jesus never said that high priest gave Jesus the showbread. He just used a term that meant in those days. Now, you say, well, I don't know. Well, that's a plausible, highly plausible explanation. So you can't call it a discrepancy. I mean, we give any author, any book, anything else that much leeway. We say, yeah, that explains it. It, It's not a mistake. And that's what generally the whole list is. We'll talk more about this in our last lesson. But I just wanted to show you. And this guy's taking time to write all these down. Um, Here's one. How many sons did Jesse, the father of David, have? Well, 1 Samuel 16, it says he has eight. 1 Chronicles says he has seven. Okay, that makes the list. This is a discrepancy. Okay. Well, if you go back and read it, it does say seven when Samuel came to uh, find a king. It says Jesse brought seven sons before him. And Samuel says, is that all you got? And he said, no, I got one more. So that's eight. Okay. Then you get to the genealogy over in First Chronicles. It gets the genealogy and it says Jesse had these sons and it just lists seven of them. Well, I've done a little genealogy work. That makes perfect sense to me. You know, I've got ancestors that in the family tree, they got six kids. You look at their life, they had 13 kids. You know, seven of them died. That's the way it happened back then. Well, when you get to the family tree, you don't list all the, the babies that were died at birth. Okay. So evidently, one of David's sons died at some point. Perfectly plausible explanation. Uh, he didn't have any part in the family tree. He never got married. He didn't have kids. He wasn't part of the genealogy. Okay. But... So the things like that make the list of discrepancies, and yeah, they're answerable, but they take a little time. Now, I know I've spent a long time on all this, but I'm trying to convince you that the people out there that haven't grown up like you have, studying the Bible and understanding reasons and all, they hear these things. And they look at these lists and they say, well, maybe the Bible is full of mistakes. So we ought to be able to give at least a reasonable to answer to some of the basic questions, and that's what this whole series is about. So couples let's talk about tonight. Let's start with uh, this one. How's the Bible inspired? People wonder about that. Uh, how can I believe it's the Word of God? Why, why do you call it inspired? Well, we ought to be able to explain that a little bit, and this is not Proving that it's from God. We can do that with a number of good reasons and arguments. But to explain the basics to people, we ought to know this at least. That inspiration means God breathed. Inspired. Spirits in there. The the, the breath of God. Uh, When we say that, 
What we mean is that humans wrote it down, but God influenced them. He breathed it to them somehow. They were inspired. Now, not in the sense that we say a modern movie or book is inspiring. Or we say that author, he's just inspired to be able to write things like that. Or an artist, he's inspired to paint things like that. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, We understand that terminology. But the authors of Scripture were inspired. They received something from God. God breathed it to them in such a way that what they wrote is the Word of God. And that's what we mean by inspired. Uh, The Bible itself claims that it is the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is inspired, is God-breathed. Because it is, it's useful for things. So all Scripture's inspired, all Scripture's God-breathed. Now, what do we mean by that? Uh, how, how far do we take that? Uh, some people say, well, some of the spiritual stuff in it's true, but uh, the science, science isn't right because those people didn't know anything. Uh, some people say, well, parts of it, parts of it are, yeah, from God and part of it's from man. And you can discount Paul because he was, you know, cranky old bachelor and you don't have to listen to everything he said. And uh, that's where we are today is arguing over, well, we're not arguing. People have just decided, well, it's not really from God. Uh, our position, what we teach on Know Your Bible and what I believe most people in this room probably believe. We believe in, although we may not call it this, we believe in verbal plenary inspiration of the Scriptures. Verbal means every word, and plenary means all of it. Down to picking the right word, the Holy Spirit influenced the authors. The that they not only had the general thought, the general idea that God wanted to convey, uh, but every word is inspired. Now, that doesn't mean that God dictated it. Otherwise, all 66 books would sound just the same. He allowed the human authors to write in their style and their characteristics and all that, but he supervised it so that every word came out the way he wanted. It's inspired. It's God breathed. Okay? Now, the reason I can say that is because Jesus and Paul and lots of other people made arguments over a single word. They said, David said this. And since he said that, <laughs> we can believe this. And they argued that way about the whole Bible, that each word is approved by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Plenary, all subject matters, everything it talks about is inspired by God. Now, 2 Peter 1.21 helps us understand how this works. Let's turn over to that. If you've got your Bibles with you, if not, I'll read it to you. 
Second Peter. One and verse 21, Peter said, prophecy never had its origin in the will of men. In other words, no man just ever sat down and wrote a book of the Bible or dreamed something up and wrote it. But men spoke from God. There's the God breathe. There's the inspiration. They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, that's kind of a cool term there. It's a, it's a boat term. You're in a boat and you're on the, the river and the, the, the uh, rapids or the current are carrying you along. That's the picture Peter uses here. The Holy Spirit carried them along. They still wrote the way they wanted to write with their background, their uh, knowledge, their sources of information. All of that is not all revelation to them, but it is inspired. It's overseen. They were carried along, so every word came out the way God wanted it to. You don't have to look very far to see the differences between authors. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes huge, long sentences. I mean, sometimes a whole paragraph is a sentence. I mean, trying to read it, you you run out of breath. No breaks in there. He just goes on and on and on and on and on. And Peter said about him, he said, that guy writes some hard stuff. But it was inspired. God let him write with his knowledge and his background and his information, but he carried him along and made it make sure every word was right. That's why we have different sounding accounts in the Gospels, which we'll talk about later, but they account for a ton of the discrepancies. Okay? Because all four Gospel writers had different sources of information. Some of them had some eyewitness accounts. Uh, some of them had seen some things themselves and others hadn't. And they told it from their perspective. When you put it all together, it all works. It's all true. It gives you the whole story. But if you just take one out of Matthew and one out of Luke, they tell you a little different picture sometimes. Okay? It's not different. It's just a different perspective of the same picture. So that's where a lot of the discrepancies come from, is out of the the Gospels. Okay, each human author had a distinctive style, had a distinctive personality, had a a source of information. And God let them write as they would, but he carried them along so that each word came out right. That's what we mean by inspiration. Now, if you start to mess with that, you start to say, well... Some of it is and some of it isn't. You're done. I mean, what parts are you going to pick then? If it's up to you to pick the parts, all you'll do is pick the parts you like and discount the parts you don't like. Uh, Not the way it's inspired. Okay, so we ought to be able to explain that to folks. Okay, now, second part. If God inspired this, and you see this all kind of falls together eventually. 
if he inspired it, if uh, Moses and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Malachi and Matthew and Paul and all of them wrote down what God wanted written down, okay, how do we know we got what they wrote down? How do we know we got the inspired books? Who said that? Okay, we get a lot of questions about that. We get a lot of questions about who decided what books went in the Bible. Well, we've got to understand a little bit about that, how the Bible got transmitted to us, how it ended up in this form, and are these 66 books all the right books, and questions around that. So let's talk about that for just a little while. Uh, the term for that is canon. C-A-N-O-N, not cannon, not a big thing that goes boom and shoots a cannonball, uh, C-A-N-O-N, and not, you can use it the other way for the best camera in the world, but uh, that's not what this is either. <laughs> Got a Nikon fan or two in here. Anyhow, <laughs> at least one I know of. Anyhow. A canon means something different here. A canon uh, is an old word, a Greek and Hebrew, both comes from Greek and Hebrew, uh, that means a measuring stick or a rule. Uh, a standard is what canon means. This is the, uh, the standard for this. Well, the canon is the standard official accepted books of the Bible. The collection of writings that are accepted as inspired. Okay. Uh, there's 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, that make up the canon. Now, I can say that a little differently. I can say that make up our canon, <laughs> because some people have a little different list. Understanding how those lists came about is what's the important part. Uh, the, the, let's talk first about the collection, and then we'll talk about what got left out and what got left in and all that. Bear in mind, this isn't happening hundreds of years after. Okay. This happened as books were written. Okay. Jewish scholars collected them and accepted things as inspired when they were written. Yeah, um, maybe not the next day. I mean, they weren't published like we publish things today. But it was in that time frame. Yeah, the scholars that accepted Isaiah as an inspired book, probably some of them knew Isaiah. Yeah, they were in that time frame. And the books were circulating or had been written and collected by the Jewish scholars. and they, they knew that that man was a prophet of God. They'd seen maybe miraculous proof from him that he was a man of God. They knew that his writing and his life reflected the, the truth about God. And they accepted it as a writing of Scripture. And these guys were dead serious. This isn't something that you did lightly. 
to call it Scripture, to call it God-breathed, to call it an inspired writing from some man that was inspired by God was a heavy-duty thing. So as the Old Testament Scriptures were written, the Jewish scholars accepted them or rejected some of them. A lot of people wrote books. Well, probably not a lot compared to today. A little harder to write a book back then. Yeah. <laughs> but the, a lot of things were written. And what was accepted as part of the canon, as the official revealed will of God, was a serious matter. Uh, for instance, in the New Testament, we'll skip to that for just a second, the epistles of Paul were circulating around. Okay? Christians had copies of them. Okay? Some of them he wrote, he said, now share this with somebody else. But whether he said it or not, they did. Okay? Uh, it wasn't like it is today where everything's published on the Internet immediately. If we got a letter, if the Apostle Paul had come to Wichita and started Northside, and then he had gone over to uh, up to Emporia and started a church there, and then gone out to Great Bend and started a church there, if we got a letter from the Apostle Paul, one of the first things we'd do is make a copy of it and make sure Emporia and Great Bend had a copy. Okay? That's the way it worked. And these collections moved around, and each church valued these things to have as the Apostle Paul wrote. Now, if somebody else wrote something, they'd be very careful about accepting this as anything inspired. They had the same connection, the same time frame that we were talking about in the Old Testament. And it wasn't like it is today going back a couple hundred years and trying to decide, is that book inspired or not? No, they were in the real time, in the moment. So each church had their collection of sets. And uh, at some point they said, yeah, these, well, these are all the letters that Paul wrote. We've, we've got them all. And these are the, the Gospels. These are the only uh, Gospels that were written by inspired men of God. And Luke wrote this book of Acts that told about the early church. That's it's an inspired book. That's in the canon. Okay. So this was agreed to by people that were very, very serious about it. Now, some things, some, something that we usually leave out in this argument is we talk about how men collected this and all that, and we say, well, couldn't they have been wrong, and couldn't they have made a mistake and just picked the wrong book and all that? They could if God wasn't interested. But do you think God, who promised that his word would endure forever, do you think maybe he was interested in what got accepted as inspired and what not? I think he was really involved. I think he guided men in those selections. Uh, he promised to preserve his word. Psalm 100, verse 5. Psalm 111, verse 7 and 8. Psalm 117, verse 2. And so men were surely guided in this determining whether something was in the canon or not. 
Now, I said our canon as opposed to some other people's canon. Let's talk about that. Uh, the main difference is, the easiest way to describe it, uh, the Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible. That's not entirely accurate, but that's what people say when they call in to uh, know your Bible. How come the Catholic Bible has more books than the Protestant Bible? Okay. Or why is the Protestant Bible missing some books <laughs> that the Catholic Bible has? Well, if you get a Catholic Bible, uh, there are some more books in there. Uh, they're called the apocryphal books or the apocrypha. And that word means, literally, it basically it means non-canonical. It's not part of the canon. Uh, secret or hidden is another way to interpret it. But it's stuff that isn't a part of the canon. And the reason for that is, is that group of books that are included in Catholic Bibles and some other folks' Bibles too, uh, some other editions of the, the Bible, uh, but not most Protestant mainstream Bibles, uh, they were books, and depends how you count them, some of them are divided up different, and first and second this or that, uh, 14 or 15 of them, something like that. They were written between the Testaments. Malachi is the last inspired book that God had written in the Old Testament. After Malachi wrote Malachi, no inspired men wrote anything for three or four hundred years. Okay. So in that period, there were guys writing books. And they wrote these mostly history books. They talked about Jewish history and Jewish tradition uh, in between the Testaments. And some of them are very interesting. Some of them are pretty good history books. But as they were written, no Jewish scholars ever said, that's an inspired book. And they're interesting history books. But no Jewish scholar ever said, whoa, that's from God. None of the Apocrypha themselves ever claimed to be inspired. Okay? You read through the Old Testament, the New Testament, you hear the kind of thing Isaiah says, the Lord said to me, this is where I got this. None of the Apocrypha does that. They're just history books. They're, some of them are closer to a novel than they are to a history book, but they were all written in that period, and the Jewish scholars never accepted them. They never put them in the Hebrew Bible. They were never considered inspired or never called Scripture. Never. Until about four or five hundred years after Christ. I mean, they were still floating around. There were books written about Jewish history and all that. And the Catholic Church decided they would include them in the, their canon. With the other 39 Old Testament books, they put in the Apocrypha. They made that decision. One of the councils decided that. And so that's why that the Catholic Bible in general has more books than the Protestant Bible, if you want to call it that. Uh, Martin Luther disagreed with that. He wanted to take the Apocrypha out. He didn't think they belonged in the Bible. 
They were in the Latin Vulgate. He didn't think they belonged there. Uh, in fact, we just got a question the other day for uh, Know Your Bible. First time I'd ever heard it. But somebody said, uh, did Martin Luther take eight books out of the Bible? And the eight kind of threw me. I'd never heard that. So I did a little research, and I remembered then that, yeah, he did disagree with the Apocrypha. He didn't think it ought to be part of the Bible. Uh, of course, he had some ulterior motives. Uh, he also didn't think James ought to be part of the Bible. He wanted it thrown out of the New Testament uh, because it didn't agree with his doctrine. So one easy way to fix things is just, just get rid of the book. Uh, but he didn't think the Apocrypha ought to be in there for scholarly reasons, for historic reasons. So there, those, there's a group of books that is in some folks' Bible and not in ours. Now, the other one that creates a minor stir every once in a while, just so you know what they are and uh, the foolishness about it, there's some things called the Gnostic Gospels. And if you heard, read, watched, or read the Da Vinci Code, that's where all of that foolishness came from. Okay? There, there are some books that were written around the first century, second century, some, uh, mainly in the second century. And what they were, were trying to uh, propagate a false doctrine, a heresy. There were two main heresies. One was about Jesus really didn't come as a human. He was just a spirit and all that. We don't want to go into all that. But a couple of acknowledged heresies, guys that believed those wrote some books and to try to pass off their heresy instead of calling it Steve's epistle or Steve's doctrine, they called it the Gospel of John. Uh, not the Gospel of John. They called it the Gospel of Peter or the Acts of John. That's two of them. Okay. They took an apostle's name and stuck it on the book, hoping they'd slide it through. Okay. That's why they're called pseudepigraphica, which means false writing. Today we'd call them fraud. They were doc, they were trying to teach their heresy by using somebody else's name and trying to get Christians to buy into it. Okay. So those books are out there floating around and they got stuff in there that is completely opposite the Bible and the true scripture. And that's why guys like Dan Brown and other skeptics and all that, they love these books. They can say, oh, this was written, and it says that Jesus was married. Yeah. It says some woman was super important in the original church, more important than Peter. Well, yeah, all these things are in these fraud books, but they're not Scripture. Yeah. Dan Brown and his ilk don't bother to go through that explanation. They just say, well, here's a gospel that was written in the second century that says this. And somebody that doesn't know any better says, whoa, I wonder what that means. Yeah. They're not in Scripture, never were in Scripture. Nobody outside of this little group of heretics 
ever considered them worth reading. So they exist out there, and they're not, as far as I know, they're not in anybody's printed Bible, but they exist, and they sometimes create confusion. We get questions about that. Was Jesus married? I heard that's in a gospel somewhere. Well, it's in a phony, pseudepigraphic, false writing gospel. But it's not in Scripture. It's not inspired. Okay, Uh, probably as far as we ought to go tonight. So if we know God's inspired the Bible, if we know we got the right books, uh, not only thanks to men's seriousness, but also God's overseeing it, uh, then we know we're dealing with the right thing here. Uh, now, let's talk next time about how it got translated and how it got down to us. And Do we know we got the right writings? We got the inspired books. We got it, the canon. Did we get it transmitted to us right? And we'll talk about that next week and then about some of the discrepancies in the Bible, different kinds of discrepancies. All right, the lesson is yours. You're here this evening and need to respond to Christ's invitation anyway. We always like to take time to make that available to you. We're going to sing a song of invitation. If you get any need of this family, we invite you to come. Let's stand and sing.